All right, hey folks, and welcome back to the 747 Conversations podcast. It's your host, Chris Shembra, broadcasting from New York City. Uh, so happy to be uh, to finally catch up uh, with one of the most amazing young men on uh, on this planet. Uh, please welcome to the podcast, Swish, all the way from Vancouver, Canada. Welcome, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. I'm just so excited to dive into uh, probably you've done more in your young years than anybody's ever done in the history of the world, and we'll get into that. But the question that I always have to start with on our podcast, it's the same question we've asked over 10,000 people in the last three years at every one of our dinners. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? That would definitely be my mom, um, especially now more than ever. Uh, she's gone through a fairly rough time for the last year and uh, has seen a lot of personal loss and gone through personal struggles. And despite that, is still my number one support system. Um, always there for me to talk to. She's always encouraging me. She's always keeping track of the big milestones in my life and trying to celebrate that with me. Um, and then even younger, man, she sacrificed so much, just like most mothers do, I think, to allow me to do what I wanted. Um, I come from a culture, an Indian culture, where a lot of times parents will push you down a specific path, like being a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor. But with her, she was so chill. And, you know, she fought back against that. She allowed me even to gap year and now even drop out of college to pursue my dream of building a company. Mm. Um, and she's somebody that is just it's so considerate. Like she just taught me kindness above all uh, towards all human beings. And that's the type of trait that I want to be able to pass on to my children if I ever have any. Yeah, so so your your mother, uh, so just to go briefly into your story, you're born in Singapore, you yep. moved to Calgary, you moved to Toronto. Are you an only child or one of many? I have one brother okay. who's about four and a half years older. He would actually have been my second answer to that question, ah. but I, I do give him a lot of credit a lot already, so I, I don't think he's undercredited. <laughs> so so uh, why, why don't you give your mother as much credit? Do you talk to her less or do you have a strained any part of that relationship? Not at all, no. I think it's just, you know, sometimes you, you take things for granted. Like a mother's love, you just take for granted. Um, and I think it's only un- up till recently, about a year, um, that's just, you know, led to a lot, especially this last year where uh, my parents got divorced and uh, lost mm. my grandfather, lost a really mm. close friend, where I started to really value just like love and like being able to feel incredibly supported by people and taking time out to be grateful for that. And so I think just, you know, growing up, Given the fact that my brother was always around me, given the fact that he was pretty much my best friend, I'd always have give him a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. But my mom, who's pretty much been a constant figure in my life throughout every part of it, um, I, I don't think I've given her that much credit yet. And it's honestly just out of taking things for granted. Our relationship is, in my opinion, just rock solid, and there's nothing that come in that, that nothing that can, that can come in that way. I appreciate it. What What's her first name? Her name's Priya. Well, cheers to Priya for yeah. <laughs> uh, for for raising a decent son. Uh, you know that's 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 for certain. Now, now you know, staying in the in the in the childhood you know theme. Um, one of the things that I I know that you're so vocal about is one of your greatest insecurities is wanting to be liked by everyone. Now, when mm-hmm. we dive into your childhood, 
kind of look at the age of seven when when it was you and your mother and the the folks around you that that realized um, that you had a, a speech impediment. Mm-hmm. And my question was, you know, how how did that uh, that lisp, uh, which has now become your gift, um, how how did that play itself then, and how did that develop into an insecurity? Um, you know, throughout your, your childhood? Yeah, I mean, look, I, at the end of the day, an impediment of any kind, mental, physical, um, is something that you don't want to have. Um, obviously, the magnitude of a lisp compared to, you know, some of the other physical disabilities or speech, you know, disabilities you could have is, is not that bad. But at the same time, I mean, growing up and being a very vocal, extroverted kid, um, and then kind of realizing when, you know, your friends are like, what, why are you pronouncing your name that way? Like, isn't your name sh- like swish, not swish? Um, or like when you're not able to pronounce ours properly, um, it kind of sucks. And so for me, I started to realize that around seven and um, it definitely put me into a little box for about a year where I was taking therapy. Um, I was going to like the speech therapist that was pretty much telling me that, you know, the way I pronounced words were wrong and um, here's what I needed to do and here's what I needed to do to practice. Um, And sometimes I was even taking those lessons at school where, you know, I'd be going into the superintendent's office in front of like a lot of my classmates looking at me and seeing that and being like, why is he going there? Um, So it definitely was a very uncomfortable position to be in. I think the reason it kind of changed around entirely is because debate came into my life. Um, I tell a lot of people, the minute you have a problem, um, try not necessarily to find a way immediately out of it, but try to find a way wherein you can put yourself in an uncomfortable position where you have to get out of it. Um, and that's what debate was for me. You know, I had to go up in front of random strangers and debate them and try to please random judges Mm -hmm. who were normally just kids' parents and try to tell them why they should vote for me on a specific issue. And to do that, I had to use my voice as much as possible. And so for me, I just started getting used to my lisp. Um, It's gotten a lot better than it was before. It has become my gift for sure. Um, But it's something that entirely, in my opinion, was made a part of me through debate. Hmm. And I mean, you, you literally, uh, you, you went straight to the finals. We're not just talking school debate. You represented Canada on the grand stage, uh, mm-hmm. and you really made it, you know, a strength. Now, you know, to, to, to look at the, you know, the shadow side of everybody's strengths, I want to make a correlation with what your, your, your most recent, you, you've been privileged to give, uh, um, or we've been privileged to hear you give three different uh, TEDx talks over your young life. And your last one was about mental health. You know, you spent yep. a lot of time volunteering for the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. So my question is, did you struggle with addiction or what are your mental health, uh, what, what's your relationship with that topic given what you've been through? Yeah. Um, I've never had a severe mental health illness for sure. Um, I think for me, most of my uh, upbringing and the support system I had um, really sheltered me from it. When I went to college, though, was kind of the first time where I broke free of my family. And I went out alone to Toronto. And that's kind of where I saw a lot of people my age um, just who were miserable. Like mm. they were lost. They didn't know what they wanted to do. They were depressed over relationships or 
you know, things that just did not go their way. Um, and I think that was kind of the calling for, for me to be able to speak up on this issue is I think the number one problem associated with mental health is the lack of advocacy from people who have never suffered a severe mental health illness. Um, you know, I don't believe that for me to talk about mental health, I need to have bipolar disease or mm-hmm. I need to, you know, be somebody that's schizophrenic. Like, I, I don't think that you need to be that way um, or have that condition in order to talk about mental health. So that's pretty much why I speak about it is is primarily because I've had friends that have gone through, um, you know, really, really bad cases of depression. And there are also times where I've questioned my own mental health, too, because especially in the last year with everything that's happened on my end personally, um, I'm thankful that I never fell into depression, but I definitely did fall into um, certain days of just unhappiness, like mm-hmm. very, very severe unhappiness. Um, and, and so for me, I think it's, it's, it's great to be able to have a good support system where I can talk to people and, and immediately vent out what I'm feeling. But I know that's not the case for everyone. And I kind of wanted to be there for people that, you know, didn't have that support system to talk to or didn't know how to be able to get help or who to go for for help. Yeah, so so we can we can really hyper focus in on this topic as it relates to entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. um, and and in in your life, you know, you've uh, you've started many many wonderful businesses. You have a portfolio career already at just the age of twenty one. Um, how important, you know, there's a, there's a wise man named Johan Hari that once said, "The opposite of addiction is not sobriety; it's human connection." Now, how important when you're going off with all these dreams and ambitions, how important is it to not become isolated as an entrepreneur and to keep that support system intact, your family, your friends, your co-founders? How does that come up in your life? It's really important. It's, it's, in my opinion, I believe that your success will be determined by the people that you put around you. Um, and that doesn't just mean having a good team. It starts at home. Um, it starts at the people that you have in your social life. Um, it starts even with having a social life. You know, I think Facebook and Instagram and a lot of people that are very famous on those platforms do a fairly bad job of showing what work actually needs to look like. Um, either they show it a little too laxed where, you know, they're just on a private jet or they're coming out of a supercar and they're telling you to work harder, or it's the total opposite where they're telling you to just hustle 24 seven and pay attention to your work as much as possible and not go outside or not, you know, take a break even. Mm-hmm. So I think on my front, it really came down to balance. You're never honestly going to be able to make a quote work-life balance. And I don't think you need to. I think Jeff no. Bezos is right. Um, you should never view your work as separate to your life. Um, because especially if you find something you love to do, you'll actually just integrate it together. Yeah. Work but obviously integration, anything, yeah. Yeah, with anything, though, too much time devoted to one thing is, is bad. And so, you know, for us on our team, for TrueFan, some things we like to do definitely is having one day during the week where we absolutely detach and we don't work. And that's important. You know, on those days, we, we don't respond to work emails. We play Call of Duty. We go play basketball. We go hike. We do something else that just moves our mind entirely and allows the creative juices to replenish. And the second thing we like to do is celebrate the small wins as much as possible. Mm. Um, whether it was a good phone call that happened, a good team call, one solid meeting, we'll come out, we'll give each other a pound, and we'll celebrate that small win. Yeah. It, so, 
that that small win, that taking the time to um, appreciate the personal victories in an employee or, or co-founder's uh, life is actually good for business. Uh, studies show that one in three employees would change companies for equal pay and position if the company showed more empathy. Now, empathy, yep. one way of showing empathy is is to realize personal successes. And you've um, you've been quoted saying, um, or you you published a quote saying that that you'd rather um, appreciate and give gratitude to those that you already have in your network than to worry about, you know, growing it exponentially and meeting new people. So my question to you is, you've built this platform of being a, you know, LinkedIn top voice, LinkedIn youth editor, 70,000 LinkedIn followers. How do you create meaningful analog connection with as many of your LinkedIn followers as possible? What's that strategy look like? Yeah, uh, it's primarily just mass engagement. And what I mean by that is any moment that I can basically create a touch point with someone in my network, I will try as much as possible to do that. Um, if I make a post, you'll, you might even notice or anybody who's on the podcast who has, you know, has me connected on LinkedIn. If you go through my post, I mean, almost every single comment that I get is responded to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually normally respond to it even within the first three, four hours of it being commented, right? So I take my time out. I take 20, 30 minutes. And I go through my comments and I reply to them. My inbox, I'm a little worse on, I think. I don't you know, get back to people over inbox as much as I'd like to. But that being said, if you want to hear from me, you will hear from me. Yeah. You know, there's so many avenues to reach me in the sense of you can tweet at me. You can send me an email. You can text me if you have your number. You can put me into a LinkedIn group with someone and I'll probably notice that. You can comment on my LinkedIn post. You can comment on my Facebook post. Like you will hear from me. And the reason why is primarily because I actually do want to hear from people. I like that feedback to my post. I like that feedback to what I'm doing. And I constantly want to hear from people and their stories because I find it really fascinating. Well, to 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 counteract that and to encourage those that are listening to this, um, you know, to to quote you and to quote a success story you had um, in reaching out to a, a a great successful man named Michael Hyatt. You're, yeah. you're quoted saying, um, um, "Oh no, no, no! Sorry, I'm 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 quoting you saying. Uh, my question is." How important is the follow-up in that particular story and not mm-hmm. taking a no for an answer? And what would you encourage people listening to this to do to follow up with you? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, in my opinion, if you want to reach out to high-profile people or just in general, if you want to make somebody feel valued, be persistent. Mm. Um, so in the process of reaching out to them, find touch points that you think you have a commonality on. So maybe it's um, over a particular you know, type of music or a particular event that happened that both of you guys appreciated or had thoughts about and reach out on that basis. Once you do that and once you meet somebody – 